Well, I am very fortunate now to be joined by Stephen Frost, head of production for Digital Eclipse, helping to oversee all projects at Digital Eclipse, including the interactive documentary, The Making of Karataka. Stephen Frost, it's your third time on XEP. How are you? I am doing well. Thanks for having me on board and, and visiting again. Always love to, to chat with you uh, and, and folks interested in what we do here at our little studio at Digital Eclipse. And uh, yeah, excited to talk about uh, what we're sort of working on, especially with the upcoming release of The Making of Karateka. It's, it's super exciting. I will encourage every listener, if you're unfamiliar with Digital Eclipse's uh, pantheon of work, they've created collections for Mega Man, Street Fighter, the Cowabunga Collection, which of course, uh, a special place in my heart for, for, for all the reasons. Uh, <laughs> and most recently released prior to The Making of, Kar- of Karateka, the Atari 50th Anniversary. Yeah, that was a that was a biggie. Yeah, that was one of our big titles for last year. Calbunga and Atari Fifty were the two biggies uh, from last year for sure. Yeah, that's that's so cool. And and I know we're gonna touch on it, but what you guys are now doing with with uh, the Gold series is something pretty darn special, uh, I think. So I'm anxious to talk about that. Uh, but the making of Karataka. Can I tell you, Stephen, that in researching this, I found myself reverting. To, to Jordan Jordan Mechner's old pronunciation of uh, Karateka. Oh, and I yeah. had to practice the <laughs> intro to make sure I did it. Uh, what do you call it? You know, uh, I think it just depends on the date. Like there'll be words that I say differently depending on what day it is and stuff like that. Um, I guess I just call it Karateka, even though it's, you know, if you want to do the phonetic Japanese, you know, Karateka or whatever, but I just end up calling Karateka because that's the the one that I used to say all the time previously. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it is kind of funny that everyone sort of has its have their unique spin on that. And you know, even uh, one of the videos uh, in the collection is sort of like this kind of funny thing where everyone's pronouncing it, you know, eight different ways, which is mm-hmm. which is pretty funny. But anyway, I, I think you probably have to kind of stick with Jordan's kind of since he made it <laughs> originally. Mm-hmm. I guess his is his is the correct one theoretically. I, it reminded me of back uh, back when I learned that Ryu's name was actually Ryu. Oh, yes. Now I say Ryu, yes. but I had to relearn it um, yeah. because games back in the day, magazines, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the, the, the Japanese thing. It sort of makes sense. And most people are not used to the Japanese pronunciation of stuff, right? And how it mm-hmm. how it's designed. And so um, there are tons of situations like that. And even it's one of those things where we've discovered, you know, as we worked on projects in the past, we may be so used to calling something a specific way. And even though we know it's incorrect, it's so ingrained, right? In your brain mm-hmm. and your tongue that you just end up sticking with it anyway. Mm-hmm. It's 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 cool because I think that's what game preservation projects like what you guys do. They teach us and they they educate us in the in the best ways. And you guys are again famous for, for a number of collections, you know, the, the most recent ones uh, I, I cited. But you're doing something different with the making of Karataka in this interactive documentary. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So you can kind of see the genesis for this uh, out of Atari 50, obviously. And how it began is when we first entered into the project for Atari and working with Atari, we were thinking about like, how do we present this in an interesting and engaging way that isn't sort of a rehash of the other collections that have sort of come out previously uh, in various forms of platforms. Atari has obviously always been releasing either hardware or collections or releases throughout the year. So it's it's sort of nothing new. And we wanted to make sure that we somehow differentiated ourselves from that because we did nothing against those sort of releases, but you know they kind of have a bunch of games there. They have a little bit of behind the scenes content um, but they aren't really diving very deeply into the company or the games themselves and things like that. And so what we want to do organically, as far as that, in order to differentiate ourselves, was really go in and spend time on each game and as well as the company and kind of provide this, what we call the contextual, historical contextual situation behind everything, right? So that people understand not only why these games are important, but why you should care about them and why you should care about the company, right? Mm -hmm. I kind of always say that 
these collections, even Cowabunga Collection, Street Fighter, they all initially rely on nostalgia, right? Mm -hmm. The nostalgia of fans, people who've played the games before. But the problem, the challenge with relying on nostalgia is that your pool of people just keeps shrinking, right? Mm -hmm. Nostalgia doesn't necessarily expand because it relies on people who enjoyed it in some form or another from the original time. Um, so you get this situation where if you just rely on that, then your community and your your fan base kind of continues to shrink over the years because there aren't any new people coming on board. And how you can kind of offset that and how you can try to get people, more people engaged is that you teach them about it, right? You kind of go back and you point out why these things are important and what you know the thinking was when they were developed and how they kind of influence everything that sort of comes after it, right? And when you do that, people, it kind of clicks because they may not have been there for the original game, but they could probably see echoes of it in the games that they're playing now. And so now they can put the two and two together and it makes sense. And then because of that, they get a newfound appreciation for the content and maybe you've got another fan of Atari or whatever for life, right? So mm -hmm. you, you got a plus one there. So we kind of took that idea and... There are so many, as, as everyone always gives us suggestions, there are so many different developers and IPs and properties that we personally, as a company, want to talk about more and dive into, right? Mm -hmm. But intrinsically, they aren't big enough or the IPs are not owned by big companies and things like that. And so it's, it's harder for those things to occur. And so when we sat down and we were thinking, planning out for the next few years, like what do we want to do as a company, right? We want to publish some of the stuff. What direction do we want to head in? And the thing that kept bubbling to the surface is like, well, let's go after the stuff that we intrinsically care about ourselves, right? The things that we grew up with or the things that influenced us throughout our careers um, or, you know, IPs that, you know, when we were kids, we played them and, and we see the evolution of how that has influenced the industry and games coming after it. And so it's a more intimate approach to it. Like we wanted to bring the scale down a bit. And we wanted to kind of focus more on specific games or specific developers, individual developers, and less about like larger companies and things like mm -hmm. that. So um, this sort of more intimate approach, that's one thing. Second, it's the whole idea of working with the actual people directly on this stuff, right? Um, they are generally the holders of the behind the scenes content. They obviously are the people who worked on the games. And so they are this vast resource of information and experience that we can tap into and pull out and make this a very kind of one-on-one -on -one sort of experience with consumers. And the message doesn't have to go from them to us to you. It goes from them to you almost to a degree, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea was like, let's make this more intimate. Let's go after properties that we hold dear and let's kind of educate people and, and, and bring into the fold people who may not have grown up on these, these things, but they're important enough to share uh, with them and get them interested in it. So that was sort of the impetus and sort of the beginning, the genesis, if you will, of that. And then, you know, we already had the framework from Atari. And so we kind of took that as sort of as the foundation, you know, trimmed the fat off, if you will, and, and kind of tightened things up a bit and made the focus more uh, of a smaller scope and kind of went from there. So I think that's where it, how it all started, basically. It's such a cool journey, at least for me as a gamer to, I mean, I was born in 85 and mm -hmm. so I had, and I didn't have access to games right away. So I jumped in to NES era during the right. SNES era, right? Cool, yeah. And missed parts, pieces and finances kept things from happening. And so that meant I had this really fractured view of the gaming industry. Yeah. And I think that's what these collections allow consumers like me to do is go back and see what it was like and with atari uh i heard stories from the people that were involved right and now the making of karatika i i confess openly i'd never even heard of karatika right didn't know jordan mechner's name which for any right. listener jordan mechner uh cool story for how he made that i'll let you share that part but people would know him from prince of persia and then suddenly in getting that icon point of Prince of Persia, much easier for me to grasp what was going on. Why the making of Karataka here? Like, why this one? Um, you know, it was a weird, like, you know, you always have these 
situations where you have this list and we have this perpetual list of stuff that we want to work on or, or properties that we always want to do something with. And, and Karataka and Jordan are always this, they're always on the list. You know, they're, they're uh, sort of amazing experience. A lot of us like grew up playing Karataka. It was a sort of a pivotal experience and sort of defining experience as far as what video games could be. And so it's always been on this list of stuff. And I think that combined with the epiphany that like, you know, Jordan likes to write down a lot of the stuff that he works on, right? He does journals. Um, he's a meticulous sort of note taker. And, you know, he released not only a karate book, but he also did a Prince of Persia one. And it's just, it's just so interesting to read those books and kind of see his thought process, you know, at a young age even, and mm -hmm. sort of why he made the decisions he did, how those decisions kind of impacted um, what was what you see on the screen. And then the involvement of like his family, his dad uh, mm -hmm. in the creation of it and other family members. And it's it's kind of this heartwarming kind of journey and and sort of like even the fact that, you know, he went to college, but he wasn't really into college and he wanted to make games and his dad was kind of supportive of it. I mean, not directly, but just kind of like, hey, if this is what you want to do, mm -hmm. you know, go ahead and do this. And so it's like the personal story that people can relate to, right? Many mm -hmm. people have like come up in this world dreaming of making video games and just like, I want to make video games, but how do I do that? And so his story is relatable very much in, in that way. And you can go through and see his growth of, of what he did originally with like Death Bounce, which never got sort of released and, and then eventually coming to Karateka and then how the Karateka uh, versions kind of expanded out to different platforms and continued on and the evolution to Prince of Persia eventually and things like that. And so I think being able to tell that story on a one-to-one -one basis where you're like, yeah, I can relate to this, right? It's almost a movie in a way, um, mm -hmm. but it's an interactive component, which is the amazing thing. And really the thing is, which is, which is crazy. It's like, you know, the best medium to tell a video game documentary is a video game really, right? Cause you need that interactive component. You need to be able to have access to the different types of assets that you would, whether it's, you know, looking at rotating a packaging and looking at like a floppy disk or videos or uh, images of, of, you know, ads or the actual games themselves, but then being able to jump in and play it and jump back out. That's, I think, the key component of this. It's really like this museum exhibit. And I kind of said this in relation to Atari a bit too, but really the, the same sort of example applies where like you go into a museum and maybe there's an exhibit about dinosaurs, right? And, mm -hmm. but there's no set path that you need to do in order to digest the information. You know, maybe on the left, there's like a video playing, you know, on the right, there's some sort of interactive kiosk. There's some images of dinosaurs on the wall and things like that. And you as a person can choose to go through there in any way you want to that interests you personally, right? And so I think why this interactive documentary kind of design works is because everything is quick and snappy. You can jump around to the things that you want to do. You want to watch the videos, go watch all the videos. If you want to play the games, you can do that or bounce back and forth, read about a game, play it, you know, read about some sort of aspect of the game development and, and then learn more about it in an interactive manner. I think that sort of digestible format really works well and allows you to like retain and jump around and, and keep your interests going for a longer period of time versus some sort of direct kind of thing that we said, okay, you got to go for A, B, C, D, mm -hmm. E, right? It's free form. And I think that's what helps people to stay engaged and interested in the subject matter. I think you're, you're absolutely right. I also think Jordan Mechner is just the prime candidate to release this type of a project, mm -hmm. given the meticulous notes, which, uh, I'm sure listeners will will learn, but like he started that at 17. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, he just just started writing everything down. He just it's hilarious sometimes the things that he's writing down, but but sometimes they're so poignant and so impactful when you reflect back on them and and it's it it really does give this insight into him uh, growing up, right? Him growing up maturing as an adult, but also maturing as a game developer right? Mm -hmm. And how those things are intertwined and his experiences that he had that impacted him. And so again, it's kind of like, it's the human story. It's kind of like this kid who just wants to like make games and, and, and you see where it ends up. Right. And, and it, you kind of see where you're going and like, Hey, that could be me. It does happen to people. Right. It's sort of like the Spider-Man story in some way. Right. With yeah. irregular strategy, but you know, it's, it's, it's still this relatable kind of experience. And so um, being able to take those notes and those journals and sort of put them into an inter interactive experience, um, I think only ups sort of like 
the interest level and the ability for people to understand and engage with it. I think that's been the the standout element of, of researching uh, Karataka, the making of Karataka, is that human aspect, right? Like learning Jordan's story, like filming his father, right? right. Uh, understanding for me as somebody who who didn't even know what Karataka was, that this was meant to be a cinematic game. Yeah, they did. He did. Uh, I, it's not motion capture, goodness gracious, but he filmed somebody and then Pixel. Yeah, I filmed his dad basically uh, in a gi, and we actually have the footage of that. And you and you can actually see the whole process of the sort of the rotoscoping aspect, which is basically he, you know, he got out the camera and he's filming his dad running in a gi. I think it was his sister's gi. I'm trying to remember, but uh, uh, sitting and just doing these sort of live action movements, climbing on stuff, running and stopping, and then. He took the footage and he basically hand drew over it uh, using this device that we kind of explain in the in the sort of the project. And you can actually see the stages of it. So there's actually a component of the timeline where you can go in and you can remove the different layers um, from the initial video to him like drawing it to the end product. And so you can see that actual evolution in an interactive sense and see the the work involved in making that happen. And that's such a key thing for this game in relation to like being able to portray the realistic movement. So we really wanted to make sure that players understood that process uh, in an interesting and interactive manner. And I, I know if anybody that's watching on YouTube, you're seeing the trailer run next to Steven and I, but if you're an audio listener, this is pre mortal Kombat. This is Apple two era right. stuff. Very early, very, very early. And ahead of its time, perhaps. Oh, for sure. I mean, I don't think anyone was, really thinking along those lines, right? Like you try to hand animate stuff as best you can looking at maybe reference, but the whole concept of actually doing this this early. And it's funny because, you know, later on, um, we did a we did a collection for Disney with Aladdin and using, you know, their whole Digicel technique, which is similar where they're using the animations and drawing them in and bringing them into the game. It's, it's almost like a natural evolution of what uh, Jordan was doing with real life, right? And so mm -hmm. it, it's kind of interesting where that journey has gone, but it is like an interesting sort of process and it is sort of the precursor to motion capture to some degree, right? You don't have the the, the balls and the fancy cameras, mm -hmm. but really fundamentally it is taking the data from motion and, and trying to recapture that in a, in a digital sense, right? You have to think how visionary the mind has to be at that time to yeah. think that's what I'm going to do. And the meticulous nature and time that is involved in doing that. Yeah, it's 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 those people where like, you know, that's what separates certain people from others, right? Some people will they'll hit a, a wall or a limitation. They're just like, okay, I guess that's it. I'll just work within the limitations. But some people like Jordan say like, I'm not happy with that limitation. I need to come up with some way to sort of overcome it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where you get those sparks of genius. And that's when you get these experiences in these games that are more memorable and sort of, you know, will last throughout history, right? The Another cool part that I think might be lost on people, it's called the making of Karataka. And it's about the process and, and and whatnot. But included in it, you said games earlier, and you were talking about Death Bounce prototypes. Yes. Things that were never released. Could you talk about that? Because it's so cool. Right. So we always try to include things that you know never saw the light of day in, in any of our collections, whenever it makes sense and things like that, or you know, creating uh, updated versions of it or, or kind of fixing bugs or issues that developers didn't get to. Uh, but in some cases like this, obviously, when you're starting out and you're making games and things like that, not everything, you're not immediately making that hit, right? You're experimenting and doing stuff. And Death Bounce was sort of this shooter experience um, that was his sort of first foray into this whole thing before kind of Karateka came to fruition. And it just, it sort of never panned out, but it, it's still a fun experiences, you know, still a fun experience. And um, we wanted to kind of uh, provide an homage to that. So actually we, you know, a couple of engineers um, worked on and created a sort of redone version of that uh, game um, and kind of like fixing some of the stuff up and extending it and things like that and making it more of a modern kind of experience or an homage, if you will, kind of like what we did with our Atari 50 with our mm -hmm. sort of reimagined uh, games. Mm -hmm. We kind of did that with this to sort of modernize it 
fix some of the issues with it and 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 at least allow people to kind of play it in a modern con- context and then mm-hmm. kind of see like where what that experience was like and if you know do they like it and 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 where did it go from there so we include that stuff we also include a variety of different you know there's karateka prototypes right like early versions of things that um he tried to do um, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff like characters or uh, enemies in the game that were never included that we included um, in the um, uh, the remastered or sort of one that Mike did for it. So there's a sort of re- remade kind of updated um, version or reimagined version of Karateka in here as well that Mike has done sort of capturing the 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 essence of the original Karateka games, but then also adding in improved visuals um, there's some gameplay mechanics that Jordan talked about, but never implemented that we implemented into that. And so mm-hmm. you can kind of see that evolution. And that's the thing with us. It's kind of like not only showing where the game, you know, like where Jordan got his start and kind of went to Karateka, but also us as game developers too, like taking and seeing what Jordan has done and say, like, how would we represent that? Like if we were making that experience, how would we sort of do it while still giving sort of respect to the kind of, limitations and sort of um areas of of importance that jordan felt when he was making this stuff too and that's where these remastered kind of reimagined games come from so this making karateka kind of goes like i said starts with like death bounce kind of progresses through in those prototypes and our reimagined version of that the make the karateka sort of prototypes up into the apple II version which is the key one that he made you know, the, the alternate versions that came sort of after that, after the dramatic success of Karateka, and then Mike's sort of remastered Karateka as the end cap for it all. So you got the whole gamut of that experience. That's so cool. And you're talking about Mike Mika, president at Digital Clips? Yeah, Mike Mika. Yeah, Mika. Yep. I say Mika and see, that's one of those things. It's Ryu yeah. Ryu. I did it. Yeah, did yeah, it. yeah. No problem. Yep. It's it's cool. It's Mika. Yep. And the, the work that he did in, in kind of building that, that feels reminiscent to me of... Uh, when you and I last talked with Jeremy Williams about Vector Sector. Right. Very similar process. Yeah. In, so in premise, maybe? Yeah. I mean, to a degree, it's it's sort of like, I think it's probably closer to what Mike did in Atari 50 with Zara, uh, Yars Revenge. Because the thing about Yars Revenge is that um, the underlying, the game is running underneath it, right? Um, this is not exactly the same with Karateka, but Yars is, it's running underneath and we put a fresh coat of paint and stuff, but it follows the rules and core gameplay of the original Yars. So Karateka does that to a degree, but like Mike tried to remove sort of some of the hardware limitations. He's like, if we were to make a Karateka game now um, with sort of the same idea, you know, and following some of the, the limitations of the look of it and the colors and things like that, what would that look like, right? And so, um, you know, things are more fluid. Uh, the, the backgrounds are more beautiful and detailed. Um, and... Like I said, there's some gameplay mechanics that Jordan never got in that Mike was able to get in. And so it's kind of this ultimate version of Karateka, right? With a fresh coat of paint on it. But hmm. underneath that, really, Mike tried to ob- obey a lot of the stuff that Jordan was limited by as well. So that it's not just this out-of-context remake of Karateka, right? There's a lot of thought that made it, that went into it. Like, why did Jordan do it this way? Let's do it this way, right? And, mm. and things like that. Um we also do, you know, along with that, like quality of life stuff, as we always do. Um, one of the things that we kind of added is, um, you know, before it used to be um, a direction, like when you did your attacks, we kind of added a little bit of Street Fighter button, multi-button component to it that mm-hmm. you can switch on for some of the Karatekas. And what that allows you to do is like now there's an attack per button versus having to do a direction down or up with the button. So it becomes a little bit like Street Fighter where there's a there's a specific attack that goes along with each of the buttons. So you can actually turn that on uh, for the some of the versions of the uh, Karateka games and uh, try a little bit of a different experience if you want to. That's really cool. The, the dealing with hardware limitations, in previous collections, you'll do really cool perks like remove slowdown mm-hmm. or uh, stop flickering right in different you know mega man i think you did it in cowabunga right um is that what you mean by quality of life and how is the apple II different right so yes some of that stuff is definitely uh quality of life stuff um we try to it's kind of this hard line because you try to add quality of life improvements that 
make the experience better, but don't necessarily impact what the original goals of the game were per se Mm -hmm. as much as possible. So, you know, when they're developing in most cases, while some people utilize the flicker and limitations of the NES hardware in order to be able to do certain things, um, there's no need to have that in modern day, right? There's no need to have mm-hmm. the flicker, the sprite flicker. And so we'll right. fix that because the experience is more enjoyable with the flicker off. Um, mm-hmm. We kind of view it that way too. Um, and so with each game that we do, we kind of evaluate, is it deliberate this way? Is it sort of a hardware situation uh, or, or some other kind of limitation? And what it boils down to, what we always ask is, what is, what is the intention of the original developer, right? And that's what really impacts it. So if we feel that this was uh, designed to be faster, then we may make it faster because those are hardware limitations because we feel that the developer wanted that way. In fact, for our uh, our next follow-up to uh, making of Karatika, there literally are some games where the hardware that it was on is so slow that the rendering is so slow that you sit there for a long time, originally back in the day, to play this experience. Nowadays, that doesn't make any sense. So why not speed it up Mm-hmm. Uh, the rendering of stuff so that you can actually play the game in a normal speed kind of scenario, right? Um, so for Karatika, um, you know, we added our typical kind of quality of life stuff that you um, you may expect, uh, you know, in, in these collections. And sometimes we throw in rewind or sometimes we do watch movies, right? Like, so Karatika, you can watch mm-hmm. someone play it, for example, uh, and skip around and things like that if you want to. Um, so we definitely include that stuff. Um we kind of left the core games mostly um, uh, by themselves. Like we didn't touch them too much because we felt that that was really the original experience that people had back in the day. And we wanted people to sort of be able to experience it the way it was intended to, but also kind of look at stuff like, you know, Mike's um, remastered kind of karate and have this juxtaposition of like, this is how it was you know, this is our natural evolution. What do you guys think about that? Right. Gotcha. That's, that's, it's so cool to, I, I just love hearing the process. I, and I, and I know I gush about it, but it's fun for me <laughs> just to, to like hear about the, the, the stages of production and whatnot. I am curious. It makes sense to me that you'd be able to, to put a collection out for Mega Man for street fighter, mm-hmm. Karataka for Cowabunga. Yeah. Karataka's old. Right. And that was on like floppies. Like yes. multiple floppies? Yes, it was. <laughs> how did you get the data, the ROM, I guess you right. would? I don't even know how that works at that stage. Right. So um, fortunately, it's a mixture of stuff. So like, obviously, generally the people we work with, we have that stuff, right? Or we have, between a lot of us, we have like quite a bit of coverage across the video game industry as a whole, right? Whether it's like ROMs of stuff or things. We have a lot of devices here where we can rip ROMs from stuff or we have systems in place, you know, of taking data from disks or cartridges. Does that imply like your personal collections, like a copy of this game or that game? Yeah. I mean, so a lot of us are collectors in general, right? So um, especially Mike, who if you ever see his office is amazing office, but he collects back to like the early days of like even PC gaming and Apple II and C were like, um, I'm mostly like retro consoles. I have pretty vast retro console collection and things like that. And other people focus on like classic hard PC hardware, classic console hardware. So like amongst the company, we have a very well coverage, uh, pretty good coverage of many different computer systems and many consoles and games and stuff like that. Um, and so as part of the process for a lot of these things, what we will do is either get our, you know prototypes and stuff from the original developers like Jordan, right? Or we will go through and we'll basically using modern technology, like rip the data from the actual uh, disks or, or things like that. And so it's a multi, depending on the process, it's, it's a multi-process kind of scenario and it depends on the platform. So um, oftentimes we try to grab it ourselves so we know it's accurate or we get it directly from the source like Jordan. Mm-hmm. So we know that it's accurate and things like that um, as best we can. And uh, yeah, mostly it either comes from our sort of collections or we go out and buy stuff. We dig out, you know, we go and try to find prototypes or, or dig things out and then buy them and then rip them or we get them from the original developers. That's that. It's cool that you guys are so connected to the history of games in that way. Um, it also makes me think how fickle the history of gaming and tracking it can be. 
oh. you know, if there's a gap in the collection yep. uh, or whatnot. Am I correct? And I'm, I'm shooting from the hip on this one. Am I correct in saying that you guys are close with the Video Game History Foundation? We are. Like, yeah. Frank is in the, actually in our building. He uh, his his, um, his office and the sort of the library is in, in our building on the bottom floor. And so, yeah, we were definitely work closely with him. Frank used to be a bit more involved in some of the early stuff, uh, Mega Man and things like that early on SNK 40th. Um, he's also a great resource and we bounce stuff off of him. He bounced, bounces stuff off of us. So it's a great sort of uh, relationship. And, you know, he also has, because his sort of foundation is, is really focused now more on like the ephemera. So like the magazines and the physical things that mm-hmm. came out in association with games that helps out a lot because sometimes he will know people and things like that. Cause really we're starting to get to a point where for the most part, the digital preservation of the actual games themselves is going well, right? People are doing mm-hmm. that. Now it's this battle for the things that came out alongside the games, right? It's the manuals, the advertising, the reviews, things that give, like I said, the historical context about this game. So if you're researching a game, let's think 20 years from now, you're researching a game that's come out today what will we be able to provide you as far as the worldwide landscape of when this game was launched? What impact did it have? What were the materials and, and that were presented? What were the TV commercials or ads that came out, right? These are all important components of the puzzle. Um, so it's, it's great that people are starting to get involved with that now. And that's a big part of what we do as we continue to grow, right? It's, the, it's not just the games themselves. It's like the advertisement or the magazine ads or, you know, or like the posters that get given out or things like that and you know now that frank and other groups are sort of focused on that having them involved and 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 being a part of that is always invaluable that's that's the part i think that um because i'm a big fan of of playing old games like right. AntStream gave me access to oh that, yes but yeah. then in cowabunga i'm able to scroll through and see promotional material and guides and stuff you know like yeah, and to, your... that, and to that point, I should interrupt, but like Cowabunga, like I'll, I'll call out a thing that we try to think about in the future. So Cowabunga, for those who, who don't have it, um, has a search engine basically for, in it. And you can actually go through and check box like, you know, uh, pizza. How many times does that appear in different advertisements or covers? And quite honestly, most consumers are not going to utilize that feature, right? It's not a practical feature. But let's imagine in the future that someone is researching turtles or interested in doing something about turtles. Now they have something that they can pull off the shelf, load it up and do a search for different characters or items or covers and spit out all of this artwork and stuff that pertains to that particular topic. So we're trying to think ahead in relation to this stuff as well. Um, And even though it might not be something that a consumer, like consumers, like why would I search for pizza or, or the turtle blimp? Right, how many times it shows up? Like that doesn't really interest me, but it's for the future, really, and and like maybe becomes a valuable resource for turtles fans or people who are talking about turtles in the future, where they can refer to this collection and search up stuff and find out some things that maybe they didn't know before. Is that kind of the goal with the gold series now, or is that a a, a parallel goal? It's sort of a, a a joint goal, like you know the the. The thing about the Gold Master series is uh, twofold. It's like, A, it's sort of like allowing us to build out or get these emulations or emulators uh, in our collection that we can utilize for the future as well. So that's part of it, right? And the way that we build this stuff is theoretically allows us to, like when future platforms come out, the being able to transition and get this stuff running on those platforms becomes easier and easier and easier. At least that's the the noble goal, right? Because we kind of view it from the standpoint that in the movie industry, you know, every time there's a new type of technology, you'll get like the Casablancas, the Godfathers, like those movies always come out again, right? There isn't mm-hmm. a generation where those movies don't come out again because they're such important movies, but you don't really see that a lot in video games, right? The, the defining games throughout history don't get reissued very much, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we want to plan for that sort of future. And you know, our whole sort of engine layer and things like that are, is built on the whole philosophy that like we can, paying it forward, we can for future generations and future consoles be able to like take the making of Karatika and launch it and release it on another system very easily in the future, right? Five years from now, seven years from now, and things mm-hmm. like that. So that's sort of our dream. But really in ideally what it is is that 
you have this collection on your shelf, just like their Criterion movies, and they're mm -hmm. defining sort of developers, defining sort of games that you kind of look back on and pull off the shelf and use as like either a reference or just something that's an educational tool or something to sort of reminisce about and things like that. But hopefully when we're done with this, and hopefully this series goes on for a long period of time, but it becomes this collection of like defining experiences and defining games and developers that spans the length of the video game industry, right? And are the people's, the IPs and the games that have left an impact on, on where things came from and where they're going. That's, it, that is so needed in gaming um, that it, it makes me, I feel like you guys are setting a standard and I hope other companies jump on board. I don't know of a lot of companies that are working to that effect. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. I think why we do it, like someone we were talking to a company previously and we were showing them some of the stuff we work on and they kind of said, you know, wow, what you do can't be really replicated. And I think why it's hard for people to replicate it, there's two reasons, I feel. Um, the first one is that we have a, a lot of people with an editorial background who work at this company. So our editorial team, like Chris Kohler, Dan Emmerich, um, they come from editorial background. Mike Micah came from an editorial background. I came from an editorial background. Our biz dev guy came from editorial background. And while we have gone different routes and we've also done game development, stuff like that, our early years really um, were based on writing, you know, ingesting game information and writing about games and sharing that with people. And that's really what the interactive documentary series is to a degree. And so since it's a strong editorial focus, you don't have a lot of companies that have um, a large number of, of people who are editorially based in the video game industry, right? Who came mm -hmm. up writing about that stuff and understand that. Um, so that's number one. And number two, and this will be a little bit cheesy, but we choose kind of the stuff that we work on um, because it's stuff that we are personally interested in working on. The mm -hmm. team members are interested in working on. Um, and I think the difference between like what we're doing here and other companies, and this is not always the case, but just my experience is that like, you know, on certain properties or certain games, people work on it. It's their job, but they're not passionate about it, right? They mm. will do the best to their ability, but they aren't going to do 110% organically or anything along those lines. We carefully choose the things that we do because we want everyone involved from like the artist to the engineers, to the producer, to everyone to be personally interested in the topic that we're discussing or covering. Mm -hmm. And when you have the entire team, you know, in some way uh, intimately sort of interested or they grew up with it or some other aspect, they tend to put more of themselves into the product, right? Mm -hmm. They tend to put forth 110%. So when you have a team that's all passionate about a product and want it to be the best thing that it can be, some magical stuff starts to happen out of that, mm -hmm. right? So I think it's those two main things that really help drive the quality of the products that we do and what we're doing and why it's sort of hard for other people to kind of match it to a degree. It makes good sense. And it makes me hope that we have similar interests when I think <laughs> about the games that I want, you know? Um, I do have some listener questions for you if you're up for them. Sure. Yeah, we had, we had a couple people write in over on socials that are excited. Uh, I, one, I bet you would expect, and I'm going to condense one of them because Wasabi and, and several others we're asking about, are there plans already for which franchise is next in the Gold series or which is the next Digital Eclipse, either collection or yes. you know, the next project? A lot of people are asking that. Yeah, for sure. So yes, the second volume is well underway of the Gold Master series. Um, and it's, it's we'll talk about it later, but it is actually much bigger than this, Karatika, the making of Karatika, um, mm. scope-wise. And it's just because, you know, as with sort of everything we do, when we go into it at the beginning, we're not quite sure what the story is that we're going to tell yet. Like, and, and sometimes the example I give is Atari 50. Atari 50, when I first imagined Atari 50 with the team, it was only 50 games, like mm -hmm. 50 games, 50 years. Um, we thought that's manageable. We didn't want a bunch of games because previous collections had a bunch of games and you start to just like get, uh, it's just too many games. Mm -hmm. But as we were progressed along in development and we really started discussing every single game, it kind of grew to 103, right? Which mm -hmm. is the amount that we kind of felt that was needed to tell the story that we wanted to tell. And that's how everything starts. It starts with like, okay, these are the games that we know we need. What is the story that we're telling? And then we adjust things as we kind of go along. So the second volume is sort of similarly like that. Like we started thinking about like, how do we tell this story? 
initially. And it kind of grew and like, well, we need this to really tell the full story and stuff like that. So it is a bigger scope experience than uh, the making of Karataka. Um, it's, uh, I think, again, it'll be sort of a, a release that while um, some people in the world will be like, yeah, I get, you know, this is awesome. I know this and things like that. There'll be other areas of the world where like, we're not too familiar with this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be a learning sort of uh, thing for us. Um, so yes, that's coming along. Um, we don't have information on a release date, but it is, it is, uh, it is trucking along very well. Um, and I expect that we will be sharing info uh, about that in the coming months after sort of Karataka is out and we've given it some breathing room and things like that. And the team has some time to relax and rest for a little bit uh, before mm-hmm. jumping on. But yes, it is decided. And we're also thinking about three and four, right? What those might be and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we definitely have some ideas. There's no shortage of ideas. It's more about like, do the dominoes line up in the right way? Can we get the rights to stuff? Are people available and things like that? So definitely thinking ahead. Um, but yes, the second one is definitely uh, locked in and almost ready to go. That is super exciting. How long does it take to, I feel like this is subjective, but how long does it take to put together a project like Cowabunga versus Atari versus Gold Series 1? Yeah, it, it really depends um, because um, sometimes the actual I mean, development process is not that long, but it's there's a lot of time spent on finding stuff like mm-hmm. the prototypes. You spend months like the, um, you know, behind the scenes, like advertisements and, and photos and things. That's a ton of time. Uh, legal clearances, uh, mm-hmm. all this stuff. It's like this sort of like the things that no one really cares about out there in the world as a consumer's perspective, but you may spend months and months and months searching for this stuff, right? Um, so it, it can really, it can really depend. It can be, you know, eight months, a year, year and a half. Like it really sort of depends on just the scope of it and how fast things are coming in. Um, if we need to go out and find people to talk to, if we're looking for a prototype, we may spend a long time because we like this prototype or this version of the game is very important. We need to track mm-hmm. it down. That may take some time too. Um, mm. but I think the bulk the bulk of the development time obviously is really as more and more assets get added to the stuff. We have hundreds and hundreds of assets that get into these sort of releases. There's a lot of time spent cleaning it up, right? We don't always get advertisements in the best condition or sure. anything, right? Photos. So there's a lot of time spent in restoring stuff, cleaning it up. Again, it's things people don't necessarily think about, but there's a ton of time that's spent just removing creases and cleaning it up and, and removing coffee stains and, and stuff like that. So a ton of the development time is spent on art related stuff for sure. That's interesting. And, and again, so many people seem to be excited for, for like, okay, after what's next? Cause I think they just have this passion for sure. it. Um, how much, this is a dumb question, but how much travel do you guys have to do for this? So it depends like on the project, like sometimes we'll fly places, we'll go to museums to scan stuff. Sometimes in the United States, right? Fortunately, there's a, a few different museums now that are focused or have sections of them focused on video games that really have a good job of, uh, of storing content. Jordan, Jordan himself has donated quite a lot of his stuff to different museums. And so mm-hmm. we've flown there to like scan them, right? So we'll go for a week or two and just scan everything and get it back. So it really depends. It depends on if people have stuff and they can send it to digitally, if we have to, we have to go to a museum somewhere. Sometimes it's extreme, like SNK 40th. Um, there is a, a game that, um, as an example, it's extreme, um, never had its, uh, it was one of the first digitized audio games that has actually a voice playing at the beginning. And um, it's never been replicated right in any sort of format. And mm. so we wanted to get it right, but that board is so old. At that time, it was like over, it was 40 years old. Now it's much older than that. Um, mm-hmm. And we had to fly to Japan and go to this small town outside of Tokyo to track down this person who has the board in his collection and convince him to send it to us here in Emeryville so that we can try to sample the audio. And so it's, it's sometimes it's flying all the way to Japan. We've done that multiple times, flying over to Europe, flying to places in the United States. It really just depends on the product and, um, you know, if the people that we're working with have the content or not, because, um, it's, it's, 
I always equate it to the Indiana Jones sort of archaeological exploration, right? Sometimes you got to find like who was the PR person who worked there at this time who may have the press releases or who was in marketing and trying mm-hmm. to reach out to these people. Um, most often than not, you know, some a lot of times because we're in California, people are local. It's been great or in down in SoCal and things like that. But yeah, sometimes we do uh, at least once or twice during a project, we generally end up flying somewhere to scan stuff or find stuff or talk with people. Or in this case, Chris Kohler, the editorial um, director here, he flew to um, actually present show the the release to Jordan Mechner and his dad uh, in in their house, and that was sort of an emotional experience too. Just be able to show them what we've been working on and and see their reaction to it and things like that. So um, they're really, I think, happy with it. I think they're really proud of how it all came together. So, and that's our goal, right? Not only do we want consumers to be, you know, when they buy it to feel that it's valuable and, and fun and educational, but obviously the people and the partners we work with, at the end of the day, we want them to be proud of what we've done as well and that we're trying to share their story, right? That's that's the the coolest thing and I, I can only imagine the emotion that comes in for you guys, whether it's it's a project you're very passionate about personally, or you're experiencing like the creator, like Jordan Mechner and and his father and the journey that they went through to make it right. even at 17, yeah. you know, it's um, crazy. It's crazy. But you know, that's, that's the stuff that is rewarding to be able to say like, Hey, the stuff that you did was important. We appreciate it. We appreciate you. This is sort of our tribute to you. Right. Mm-hmm. That's uh, amazing. Have you seen a, a big an interest as you guys have created these collections? Uh, and have you seen gamers adopt a bigger or stronger interest in game preservation? Or is it getting harder? Um, I think that there is, just in general across the industry, uh, a bigger awareness of it. Um, I think the Video Game History Foundation released a report recently, too, that kind of talked about how many games have been lost or how much has been lost to history, right? Which is just a sad thing. So I think more so than even a few years ago, it's at the top of people's minds. Um, More importantly, people in the industry, right? People who are working on these games are like, ah, maybe I should keep that, right? There is this conscious awareness now of like, this artwork that I've done or this that I've done, maybe I should keep it and not throw it away. Um, So I think that can only help us years from now. And so I think that is a good sort of thing. I also do think that there's a lot more people who are starting to be interested in the roots of this industry and where it came from, right? Whether it's Atari, SNK, folks like Jordan, um, et cetera. Like there is this growing not, what, desire to have an understanding of like where things came from, right? And how they impacted things now. And I think those are the most rewarding things. Every time I see someone, you know, I, I've mentioned this before, but like who says like, I wasn't interested in this thing, but the way mm. you guys presented it was such a great way that I bought it and I am, I, I love it, right? And that's amazing. That is an amazing thing. And, you know, not that we would go down this route necessarily, but eventually like being able to create experiences that maybe are like taught in schools or, or colleges where you're like, you know, this, the, the, the rise and fall and rise of Atari as a, as a, as a part of a class thing and being able to do that by going through Atari 50 and playing the games and reading about it. Um, that's kind of a powerful thing. And, and who knows where it can go from there, right? This is the start of it, but maybe it does grow from there and you start to see more and more people adopting this kind of idea and philosophy and overall as an industry we just become better at preserving this stuff and thinking about this stuff moving forward i hope so because in previous interviews we've talked about playstation plus xbox game pass subscription services and the impact they can and can't have on games um talked about cloud gaming and how that is and isn't good right Right. uh and whatnot and so I, i hope that that interest and that awareness uh, seems to make its way through because there are games that I can never play again. Very true. There's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. Um, We've answered a ton of the questions from, from French toast and Pedro and Damien and Wasabi that wrote in, but uh, I do want to get a couple more of these specific to the making of Karataka. Um, Mike Mika burned up some of my excitement. He answered some of these already. How many achievements will be available? Uh, will there be local co-op or versus for Karataka? 
Uh, work on yeah, Steam Deck. so um, <laughs> achievements, I'm trying to remember, it's like 18, 19, 20, somewhere around that ballpark, uh, I think mm-hmm. 18 to 20. I can't remember offhand. It's been a while since I looked at the achievement list for that. Uh, I think it's around 18 or 20 achievements. Um, mm-hmm. Don't kill me if I'm wrong. I think it's around that ballpark. Mm-hmm. Um, Steam Deck, yes. We always try to make sure things work on the Steam Deck. Sometimes I, we get dings for like the text sometimes because it's hard because mm-hmm. we sometimes have to display so much text and it needs to be a certain uh, size, character size for Steam Deck to fully approve stuff. But I think everything that we've ever released works quite well on the Steam Deck, and this including this as well. Um, the question about co-op, no. Um, no co-op or anything like that. I'm pretty sure that Mike had thought about it. We had discussed some elements of potentially doing... You know, you see like this inspiration from like games like Karate Champ and things like that, like where there's like dueling or two people co-op going through it. So I think we molded over, but um, the schedule for this one didn't work out for that. Um, who knows, maybe in the future at some point, but I think we really just wanted to focus on the core single player experience, which is what Jordan's initial you know desire was uh, as well. So Very cool. Now, what platforms is the making of Karateka arriving on? Right. So it's on everything. So Switch, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series, Switch. Um, And then it'll be on pretty much every major PC store. So GOG, Steam, and Epic so far. There might be more, but those are at least the the main three. Awesome. Awesome. And, And the release date? It is coming. It is this Tuesday, actually, for Karateka Tuesday, um, which is the 29th, and it's exciting. Um, every version will be out. We were a little bit concerned about Switch because it was running a bit late due to submissions, but the U.S. Switch will also hit on that day. Unfortunately for, I think, Europe, it's going to come just a teeny bit later than that if you're in Europe and on the and wanting the Switch version. Apologies. Um, we just had um, some uh, issues with uh, getting it through Nintendo uh, at the tail end there. And um, so hopefully you don't mind waiting a few more days. But for most people, it'll be this coming up Tuesday, the 29th. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Steven, I take a great deal of pleasure in, in getting to learn from you, getting to learn from Digital Eclipse overall. And I appreciate you taking the time today. Um We've already said where to find the game, but let people know where they can find you and the projects that Digital Clips is working on in future. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, main place is of course the digitalclips.com website. You can sign up for a newsletter. Uh, in the past, we have tended to send out free games that we kind of make on the spur of the moment. So you may end up getting some free games here and there if you do subscribe to our newsletter. And we don't spam a lot. We only send it out every so often when something important is happening and related to the company. Um, If you prefer, obviously, the other uh, social uh, sites, we're on every... Actually, every social site, I think if you search up Digital Clips, Twitter, it's Digital Clips, um, Blue Sky, we're everything. Um, and I'm Frostman007 on Twitter. That's my main point of contact if you ever want to reach out to me. Um, but yeah, uh, come to our website, sign up for the newsletter. That's probably the best bet and where you get the latest uh, info and news. And you may get some cool, uh, interesting rewards every so often too. Very cool. Well, uh, listeners, viewers, thank you for uh, checking out the interview, checking out XEP. Please go support Digital Clips and what they're doing for game preservation. Uh, and with the Gold Series, it's fantastic. Have a fantastic rest of your week. Take care. Take care. Bye.